Well, friends, I don't know if it's still snowing outside or not, but in light of the snow day and wanting to keep us focused on the Gospel of John, we decided that this morning we would modify our time a little bit, and I mentioned that in the announcements, and one of the ways that we've decided to do that is to modify the planned sermon text. Uh, this morning I had planned to preach on John 3, 1 through 8 for us. It's uh, Jesus' interaction, the uh, first part of his interaction with this Pharisee named Nicodemus, and they have this really intense, deep discussion about the kingdom of God and how to enter the kingdom of God and this, this phrase that Jesus uses about being born again of the Spirit. But I knew uh, in light of the snow and the inclement weather uh, that maybe we would not have everyone here to be able to hear that heavy, meaty sermon. And so I decided that what might be good for us this morning and also to respect everyone's safety to instead prepare us for that sermon. Instead, spend a few moments together today meditating on just a couple of verses from Colossians 1 that I think, that I think will prepare us for John 3. There are a lot of supporting passages in the New Testament and in the Old Testament looking forward that help kind of gird up John chapter 3 especially verses 1 through 8. But I think these verses here in Colossians that we're going to think about today may be very helpful for us. Because as you'll see in just a moment, these two verses, Colossians 1, 13 and 14, all center on this idea of salvation. What is our salvation? What does it mean to be saved, to be a Christian, to be redeemed? I think as you all are here listening today, and hopefully those who aren't with us this morning can listen afterwards and help prepare us for thinking about John 3 next week. The letter of Colossians is in some ways a bit different than Paul's other letters. In most of the other letters that the Apostle Paul writes to New Testament churches, whether it's the church in Colossae or Philippi or Thessalonica or Corinth, right? In all of those letters, a lot of them, Paul's dealing with problems within the church, right? And so in Corinth, the, the, the Corinthian church, they're, they're just going off the rails. They're doing all kinds of things that they shouldn't be doing. And Paul has to correct them and, and kind of sort things out. You think about the letter to the church in Galatia, the, the letter to the Galatians. They, they had some false teachers come among them, those who were known as Judaizers, who said, if you want to be Christians, you have to actually obey the Jewish law, too, and abide by it uh, in order to be saved. And so Paul had to, had to correct that false teaching that was in the church. But the letter to the Colossians is a bit different in the sense that the church in Colossae does not have some huge problem going on, whether it's within or without. But Paul's letter to the Colossians is more of a letter of encouragement. It's more of a letter of reminding them of the basis of their foundation in order to, to exhort them to keep going, to continue to pursue Christ, and to continue to lay hold of the faith that has been delivered to them through Paul and the preaching of others. And so Paul writes this letter to them to remind them of whose they are, that they belong to Christ. And what that means for their lives. And so, 
Let me open our time then by reading for us from Colossians 1. I'm going to read the entire first 14 verses. I didn't have time to look up where that is in the Pew Bible. Does anybody have the page number? Anybody? Everybody bring their own Bibles today. Good. Good job. Good job. Or your phones, maybe. Okay. What? 572 in the Pew Bible. So if you forgot your own Bible this morning, grabbing your snow boots and your jacket, heading out the door, you want to use our Pew Bibles, it's there on page 572. 572. I'm going to read all of the first 14 verses there, but we're going to focus on just as verses 13 and 14 in just a moment. And friends, as we do read the Word of God, as we do each week out of our reverence, out of honor for God's Word, let me invite you to stand. Hear now the word of the Lord to us today from Colossians 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. You may be seated. Well, friends, as you can see there in that opening reading, those first handful of verses, uh, Paul's doing what he often does, and that is writing a lot of run-on sentences. Now, Paul has, has really wonderful grammar and really wonderful word choice. He also has a really wonderful use of commas in what he says. And so, I might encourage you even this week as you go back in, in Colossians 1 here in verses 1 through 14, just to go through and look at these verses again and notice how he continues to just add layer after layer after layer to what he's saying, specifically there in verses 3 through 8 and then again in 9 through 14. But here in this letter, something very interesting comes at the end of this prayer that he's praying for them. I love how he shares with them the prayers that he's prayed. There's not a bad thing to do even in our own lives as we're praying for others. 
Not so that we can boast and gloat over, oh, I, I prayed for you today. No, what's more important is sharing with others, here's what I have been praying for you. And that's exactly what Paul does to this church. He says, here's, here's Timothy and I are always praying for you. And here's how we're praying for you. Here's what we're praying for. What an encouragement then for the Colossian church to be able to turn around and see the fruit of those prayers. So know, hey, Paul and Timothy have been praying for us in this way, and now we see God answering those very prayers among us. So what has Paul been praying for them? We've been praying a number of things. If you go back and look there, starting in verse 9, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking, they're, they're asking God that this church may be filled with the knowledge of His will, both in wisdom and in understanding. Why? So that they could walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they need the knowledge of God in order to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That they need an understanding and a wisdom in the world in which they live so that they can continue to glorify Him. What does that manner look like? What does that walk look like? Well, he says a few different things. You can see they all end with I-N-G. That's a good way to know that he's kind of talking about the same thing, kind of repeated I-N-G words. Bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God and being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Later he goes on there in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father. What is it that Paul and Timothy have been praying for this church? Well, friends, nothing less than growing up into the mature Christians that God has called them to be. But perhaps the most important thing about all of this is where this fruit bearing, this, this growing, increasing, and giving comes from. Find it there in verse 11 particularly as it relates to being strengthened. And I know we could all use that in whatever situation or station we find our lives needing strength because we know the weakness of our own hearts and our minds, our own hands and feet even. Notice what he says, being strengthened with all power, not just some power, with all power, but where does all this power come from? According to his glorious might. Paul is beginning now to turn on to something that verses 13 and 14 are going to drive home. That the work of Christian maturity, the work of growing up into mature Christians is a work of God Himself within us. It is not a work of us somehow ascending to some greater strength or greater knowledge in our own power. As if the Christian life is like a Sudoku puzzle that you, you start with the easy ones and over time you do more and more and more of them so you can get to the really, really hard ones. It only has like two numbers on the whole box, right? I don't know if any of you are at that level. But that's not the Christian life. The Christian life is continuing to rely on the Lord. Continuing to rely on His power so that He may grow us. So that we may increase in bearing fruit through Him and what He does within us. So Paul begins to hit on this right as he goes into this final declaration in verses 13 and 14. It's not really a part of the prayer. If anything, it's just, it's just a little reminder. And that's what I want to give up to us today, this little reminder from 13 and 14. Look back there. It says, He has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Three questions I want us to answer from this text. If you'd like to jot these down, you're more than welcome to do so. Number one, what has God done? What has God done? And number two, where has God done it? Where has God done it? And then number three, how has God done it? What has He done? Where has He done it? And how has He done it? Let's look here. And we'll see the answers to all three. First, what has God done? Verse 13 begins with a short little phrase that summarizes the entirety of our salvation. A short little statement to summarize exactly what God has done for each and every one of us who claim the name of Christ, who have been redeemed. Here it is. He has delivered us. He continues it on a little bit later. And transferred us. These two verbs here, delivered and transferred, are given to us. They are action words. They are active words. They are taking up something. They are doing something. But let's not miss who it is who is acting. Look at the first word in verse 13. He has delivered us. Friends, I know that, that we're pretty smart people, but let, let me point this out to us. It doesn't begin by saying, you have delivered yourself. It says, He has delivered us. He. Who is He here? It's not Paul. It's not Timothy. Friends, it's not even Jesus. Some of us may say, oh, well, I thought that was the right answer always, Pastor. Not here. No, the He that is being spoken of particularly is God the Father. That it is He who has delivered us. How do we know it's God the Father? Because it says later they transfer us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And so who is the beloved Son but Jesus? And how is it His if it is not the Father? And so it is He, the Father, who has delivered us here. It is He, the Father, who has planned and worked for us. It is He, the Father. Who is the author of our salvation. It says here that He has delivered us. Paul uses has delivered on purpose. It's a past tense. It's not He is going to deliver us. Now that's true. There is a sense in which we will be delivered in the last days, in the final time when we will be glorified for all eternity. It's not He might deliver us as if it's something God could possibly do. No, for the Christian, it is He has delivered us. It has taken place. It is finished. This is what we call our justification. That God has delivered us. It is a complete action that is being spoken of here. Fully done. And what is it that He has fully done? Delivered. Delivered us. Now this is an interesting word for a couple of reasons. First, because of what this word means here in the Greek. It means to rescue from severe danger. To rescue, to pull out of severe, acute 
danger. But what's also interesting is thinking about the text we're going to look at next week in John 3. Where Jesus says that if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, the idea of being born is also a concept where the word delivered gets used a lot, isn't it? In fact, what do we call it? The room where the woman goes to have a baby? The delivery room. And so, in some sense here, we have a picture of what we're going to think about next week. That God has taken us and brought us out. He has delivered us and taken us somewhere else. It reminds me of the old question that relates to Lord of the Rings. If you know Lord of the Rings, the story, the very end, Frodo and Sam, they get to, to, the, to Mordor and they, they get there and they're, they're, they're destroying the ring and, and, and all is good except they're stuck. And what happens? The eagles come and save them. The eagles finally come and rescue them out and deliver them out of this danger. And here's always the question everybody has. Why didn't the eagles just take them over to begin with and let them just drop the ring at the very beginning of the book? And the book would have been all of like three pages long. Well, then Tolkien wouldn't have had much fun with that, would he? But it's the same idea of the acute and severe danger that we find ourselves in. And that it is God who comes and delivers us. And not just delivers us, but transfers us. That's what it says later on. What else has God done? Not just delivered us, not just rescued us from severe danger, but He has taken us, transferred us somewhere else. And that's what that word transfer there means. It means to change position or state, to, to transport. It is an active word of God moving on His own behalf on someone else and doing something to them. He has moved them. And this is important to note because of what we're going to think about in just a moment of where God has done it. The issue here is not that God has, has just changed the world around us. Don't, don't miss that. It's not that we are in the kingdom of darkness and God has suddenly made that kingdom of darkness the kingdom of light. There are some Christians who tend to think that way and it affects how they live in the world. That, that my main job is to go out and to change the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. But that's not what the Bible says. No, God's word here says that he has actually transferred us. We have moved from one kingdom to another. We've changed states. I'll think about that more in just a moment, but I don't want you to miss this, friend, especially if you're here today and you are not a follower of Christ. The way he ends this phrase is all too important and all too often missed. He has delivered us. He has transferred us. Who is the us here? It's Paul and Timothy writing to the church at Colossae. This is a description for the Christian. This is not some kind of universalism where everybody gets in at the end, no matter what, where God just turns a blind eye and sweeps all of our rebellion and wickedness under the rug and pretends like everything is okay. Some of us have those family members. Some of us might be those people where not everything's okay, but they act like everything's okay. No, that's not how God is because He is just 
And He is holy. And so who is the us that is being talked about here? It is those particularly who have been redeemed. It is those who have particularly been saved and rescued. This is the good news for Christians. This is the good news for those of us who have turned from our sin and turned to Christ. And friend, if you are here today and you are not a Christian, this is the good news we want to extend to you. That for all of those who turn from their sin and turn to Christ, they too have been delivered. Friends, in fact, as we'll come to see next week, it is the only way that we can repent of our sin. It is the only way that we can confess our sin. The only way that you can turn to God is if He has enacted on you in this way. This is not something we muster up in and of ourselves. I was having a conversation with my kids last night about the kingdom of God. And we were talking about what does it look like to be in the kingdom of God? How do you know you're in the kingdom of God? And I told them, just opened up John 3, that's what we were talking about. It says there that Jesus says, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so friend, how do you know you're in the kingdom? If you start seeing it. Talk about more about what that looks like in a moment, and more even next week. What we need to see here in this first point, what God has done, is that our salvation is fully and finally the great work of God. That our judge has become our deliverer. That the one that we stood before condemned only worthy to bear the penalty and the condemnation that our sin had incurred. That very one is the one who has delivered us. He is the one who has saved us. He is the one who has enacted on our behalf and in our place. He is the one who has saved. For wherever His grace is not, as John Calvin said, there is darkness. But wherever His grace is, is unabounding light. Isaiah gets at this same idea if you turn back to Isaiah 60, verse 2. Near the end of Isaiah's prophecy, things start getting really good. Isaiah 60 verse 2 says, For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and His glory will be seen upon you. This is the work of God. That in our darkness, He arises upon us. So let's consider what Paul says about that darkness then. So we think about where. God has done it. Where God has done it. He really gives here two worlds. Two different worlds are described. Look back at verse 13. Jesus has delivered us from the domain of darkness. There's the world number one. And transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. World number two. Two worlds are mentioned here. But what's interesting is they are not equal. They're not described as equals even. You might expect that He would talk about the domain of darkness and the domain of light. That may make it sound more Star Wars-esque. 
have the dark side and you have the light side. They're pretty equal and they're always going to battle with one another. But that's not how he talks about them. And it's important to notice that because he's drawing a distinction, but it is a distinction of the lesser to the greater, of the inglorious to the glorious. So let's think first then about the domain of darkness. The domain of darkness. What does this mean? What is this idea of a domain of darkness? How, how is darkness described in the Bible itself? Well, you saw, I just read from Isaiah 60, verse 2, that the world is covered in a thick darkness. So, so specifically, the Bible talks about the world being in darkness. That the world itself is darkened. If you look over to John 3, 19, we're going to look at that in a few weeks. But if you'll turn there quickly. If you can, if you don't, I'll just read it to you. John 3, 19 says this, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. And so the, the, the Scriptures help us understand that the entire world and all who dwell within it are pursuing darkness in their natural state. It's not just the world that's in darkness. The Scripture also talks about Satan and the demonic world. The powers of the air. And so, Ephesians 6.12 tells us all about the war that's going on around us that we do not see. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That there is a dark, demonic realm that is ruled by Satan. But finally, the Bible doesn't just talk about the world being darkened. It doesn't just talk about the darkness of the demonic world. But it also talks about the darkness in ourselves. And so, also in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 says they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Think about even Zechariah's prayer over in Luke chapter 1. John the Baptist is born. Zechariah, who was mute for much of that pregnancy, his tongue is loosed and he begins to praise God to worship God and to sing over his son and he says that his son is going to be a prophet for the most high and that the most high Jesus who is coming what is it that he will do Luke 1 to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet in the way of peace and so, friends, we see the, the, the great vastness of the darkness that's all around us. That there is a seen realm that is full of darkness. And I'm not saying this to somehow make us all a bunch of cynics. That anytime anything happens in the world or we see a new, new movie or television show or hear a new song on the radio, we should just think, where's the darkness in this? 
friends, we do need to be aware. We need to be slow to absorb and drink up the things of this world. We must listen and watch and take in with a discerning eye and ear. At the same time, we should not be ignorant to the unseen world as well. That Satan, demons, are at work in ways that we do not see C.S. Lewis in the screw tape letters say, says that, that we have the, the possibility of falling into one of two ditches. One, we become so consumed by the demonic and the dark spiritual world that it takes up all of our mind and we assume that everything that ever happens is somehow a demon. And so we think, say things like, there's a demon in the microwave and that's why it's breaking. That's one ditch. The other ditch is to ignore it altogether and pretend like nothing that ever happens is the work of the enemy. Well, friends, we must be aware and have our sights set rightly. But finally, and mostly, we must be aware of the darkness within ourselves. Friends, I cannot bring this home enough. It's no coincidence here or happen chance that Paul says he has delivered us from the domain of darkness. The way that Paul talks about the darkness of this world is that he calls it a domain. It's his dominion language. It's his kingdom language that he's using. He says that there is a kingdom, there is a domain where the dominion itself is darkness. And friends, this is all of us in our natural state. This is bondage and slavery language. That we have been captured and held by the bondage of darkness. That we are enslaved to darkness and to sin. That we are under the rule of darkness. And how do you know it? You remember in Genesis 1, before God began to act on His creation, how it was described. That darkness covered the face of the deep. And the earth was what? Formless and void. It had no order and it was chaotic. And so in discerning the darkness around us, whether it's in the world or our own hearts, how do we know that we are standing in darkness? If we find ourselves in chaos, if we find ourselves in emptiness, if we find ourselves restless and without hope. My question for you is, are you under the rule of the emptiness and chaos of darkness? Let me give you a more beautiful vision then of where God would take us. The kingdom of His beloved Son. The kingdom of His beloved Son. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, John gets at some of this in 1 John. In 1 John 3, verse 14, we read this. We know that we have passed out of death into life. Because, and here's a mark of passing from death to life, okay? So if you want to put this on your list of what fruit should I be bearing if I'm in the kingdom of God. 
Because we love the brothers. Here's, here's a good sign of someone who's a Christian. They love God's people. As imperfect as they may be, they love the brothers and the sisters. They love the church. It goes on to say, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. And so what is this kingdom of the beloved son? It is a kingdom of love in and of itself. It is a kingdom of life. We may ask ourselves, why doesn't Paul describe it as the kingdom of light? Why does he say that we've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light? Why does he call it the kingdom of the beloved son? Well, friends, it's, 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 no, it's no hidden thing to us that this is the words of Jesus over and over and over again. He says, he says in John multiple times, I am the light of the world. He says in John 1, the author, John, tells us that the light has shone into the darkness and the darkness has not understood it. Why is it called the kingdom of the beloved son? Because Jesus, the beloved son, is the light. In fact, we read in Revelation 21, at the very end of the Bible itself, that God will dwell in the presence of his people and that the Lamb of God will be their lamp. Therefore, they will have no need of a son any longer. Because the Son of God will brighten all. It's not just any son that's mentioned here, is it? It is the beloved son. The beloved son. It is the son in whom God finds his full pleasure. That's what that word beloved means. That God finds his pleasure, the Father finds his pleasure in the Son. You think about what, what the Father says as Jesus is up on, on the mount, what we call the Mount of Transfiguration there in Matthew 17. Peter's running his mouth about how he wants to build some tents for Moses and Elijah, right? And the Father speaks from heaven and he says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. I love that the father adds that at the end. It helped Peter realize what's going on. Listen to him. He stopped talking. It is the kingdom of the son which God the father loves. It is because he is the one and only son. We thought about this in John 1. That Jesus is the son of inheritance. That He is the Son who receives all the love of the Father. And it is only because Jesus is that beloved Son that He now gives us the right to become children of God. That we cannot become children of God outside of the Son, sharing the inheritance with us. And therefore we are adopted as children of the Father. This is the beloved Son. And so friends, we are not acceptable to God except through Christ. What a picture. What a picture for us who are fathers. Loving our own children. And so what is this kingdom of the beloved son? Well, friends, it is the kingdom that you hear so often described as already and not yet. It is the kingdom that has been started in Christ's first coming and will be Finished, brought to completion, and fully opened up in his second coming. 
But more than that kingdom that's been begun and will be finished. I think it's a great way to think about the kingdom of the beloved son. It is also a kingdom that is immensely practical and working itself out in our lives. For those who are in the kingdom of the beloved son, they've been given new eyes. Maybe not physical eyes. Spiritual eyes. They see things differently. Most notably, they see their sin differently. They see Jesus differently. They see the world and their purpose for living in it differently. They've been given new eyes to see. In the kingdom, we've been given a new desire. Our desire is to glorify God. And while we know we don't always glorify Him as we ought, while we stumble and fall and fail in glorifying God, their desire is to do so. And even in their repentance, that is the chief thing we repent of. Not that I, I looked at what I shouldn't have. Not that I said what I shouldn't have. Not that I, I stole something that was not given to me. But God, when I did that, I did not glorify you. I made little of you and much of myself and much of creation. But in the kingdom we've been given new desires. God, I long to glorify you. So then we've been given a new hatred. We don't talk about this enough. In the kingdom of God, we hate everything that is not of Him. We hate the wickedness we find within our own hearts that we continue to deal with. And the wickedness permeates this world. We hate the work of Satan. What's more, in the kingdom of God, we've been given a new family. This is one of the outworkings of being born again. Born again into what? We're all born into a family. Some of us like ours, some of us don't. But in the kingdom of the beloved son, we've been born again into a new family. Into an everlasting family full of brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers and aunts and uncles and grandma and grandpa. Who care for us and watch over us. This is why we aim to have a multi-generational church with children and middle-aged folks and senior adults together. So we have a new family. And finally in the kingdom we've been given a new hope. So that we can weather this world. With our eyes on the one to come. And why is all of this true? Because in the kingdom of the beloved son we have been given nothing short of new life. This is what it's talked about here. The domain of darkness is a domain of death. But we have been transferred and taken from death and brought unto life, unto His marvelous light, unto glory, unto beauty, unto new life itself. So the final question is, how has He done it? It is God who transfers us. How? Look back at verse 14. Transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. How is it that the kingdom of the beloved Son comes to be full of citizens? How is it that the glory of Jesus comes to be the heart cry of His people. How is it 
that we are transferred? How is it that we are delivered? How is it that our desires are changed? That our eyes are changed? That our hope and our family itself is changed? Here it is. In so few words, but so glorious a truth. In whom we have redemption. How is it that we are transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the Son through the redemption of Jesus Christ? Through the work of the beloved Son to redeem those who when we look at our lives we feel so irredeemable. The King has initiated the kingdom by His own life, death, and resurrection. That's why it means there in that phrase, in whom. In whom. This is the way that Paul most often talks about those who follow Christ. We looked at this back when we studied the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the only time we find the word Christian actually used. It's used as a derogatory term to put down these little Christ. Most often, when, when Paul... And the other New Testament writers talk about Christians. They talk about them in this way. In Christ. In whom we have redemption. That it is in Christ. That we are brought to salvation. In Christ we have redemption. And all of our redemption. In Christ we are justified and made right before God. We stand before the judge and he becomes our father in Christ. That Jesus' death is our death. But he's also our sanctification. He is the one who makes us more and more into the image that we are called to be. This is what Ephesians 4 says, that we're to grow up into the head. We are the body growing up into the head, growing up into maturity. We do this by knowing Jesus. But finally, he is our glorification. That in His resurrection, we see a foretaste of what is held out for all of us. That we will be given new bodies, perfect and holy as He is holy. And so it is in Christ we have full redemption, complete redemption. And so in all of our boasting, it should not be us that shines forth. It ought to be Christ. And how does He describe that redemption here? The forgiveness of sins. Friends, when our sin is dealt with, we are free from the condemnation we deserve. Children in particular, I want you to hear this. You do not save yourselves. You do not redeem yourselves. No amount of belief no amount of your parents' belief, no amount of church attendance, no amount of singing or praying redeems you. Those are all fruits that come out of redemption. But redemption, the tree trunk that is redemption, is all of Christ. It is He who saves you. It is He who redeems you. It is His work. And so we all so often say, down at the cross where my Savior died, it was there that we were saved, that we were redeemed. And so this kingdom is one for the redeemed. And this kingdom is growing even now, friends. 
It's growing in our own hearts and in our own lives. That our church should be a picture of the kingdom. That our lives should be a picture of the kingdom. But friends, do not miss it. This is not the end. Because the kingdom is still coming too. So that when Jesus returns, this kingdom of the beloved Son will be full of light and there will be no darkness in it. And this is where our hope is. This is where our eyes ought to be cast. This is where our love ought to burn. May there be glory in the kingdom and love for the king. Thought I might close then this morning. The longer quote from Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evenings. I don't know which evening this was from. I forgot to look at that part. But it's from one of the evenings. It's not a morning one. It's an evening. Which is a, a great little devotional book to have. If you don't have a copy of Charles Spurgeon's Morning and Evenings, uh, come let me know. I'll buy you one. This is what Spurgeon says there as it relates to what we've been thinking about here this morning. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God. Conscience accuses no longer. Judgment now decides for the sinner instead of against him. Memory looks back upon past sins with deep sorrow for the sin, but yet with no dread of any penalty to come. For Christ has paid the debt of His people to the last jot and tittle and received the divine receipt. And unless God can be so unjust as to demand double payment for one debt, no soul for whom Jesus died as a substitute can ever be cast into hell. It seems to be one of the very principles of our enlightened nature to believe that God is just. We feel that it must be so. And this gives us our terror at first. But is it not marvelous that this very same belief that God is just becomes afterwards the pillar of our confidence and peace. If God be just, I, a sinner alone and without a substitute, must be punished. But Jesus stands in my stead and is punished for me. And now, if God be just, I, a sinner standing in Christ, can never be punished. God must change His nature before one soul for whom Jesus was a substitute. Therefore, Jesus, having taken the place of the believer, having rendered a full equivalent to divine wrath for all that His people ought to have suffered as the result of sin, the believer can shout with glorious triumph, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Not God, for He is justified. Not Christ, for He has died. Yea, rather, has risen again. Get this. My hope lives not because I am a sinner, but because I am a sinner for whom Christ died. My trust is not that I am holy, but that being unholy, He is my righteousness. My faith rests not upon what I am, or shall be, or feel, or know, but in what Christ is, and what He has done, and in what He is now doing for me. Let us pray. Oh God, that we 
would be awakened and enraptured with the glory of Christ. That we may know the great, great glory of dwelling in the kingdom of the beloved Son. Oh God, would you protect us from thinking too little of this kingdom. And God, for those who still sit today in a domain of darkness, would you redeem them? Would you give them new life in this very moment? Save them, God, so that we may all as a new family glorify you with one voice, lifting high the one who paid for our penalty and rose for our hope and joy. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.